in your Bible, 1 Chronicles, 1 Chronicles chapter 29. 1 Chronicles chapter 29, and if you will stand with me when you find it, the last chapter of the book of 1 Chronicles chapter 29, please. Okay. I'll begin reading in verse number 9. And then the people rejoiced for that they offered willingly, because with perfect heart they offered willingly to the Lord. And David the king also rejoiced with great joy. Wherefore, David blessed the Lord before all the congregation. And David said, Blessed be thou, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory, just like has been sung then, and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come of thee, and thou reignest over all, and in thine hand is power and might, and in thine hand it is to make great and to give strength unto all. Now therefore, our God, we thank thee and praise thy glorious name. Who am I and what is my people that we should be able to offer so willingly after this sort? For all things come of thee, and of thine own have we given thee. And we are strangers before thee, and sojourners, as were all our fathers. Our days on the earth are as a shadow, and there is none abiding. O Lord our God, all this store that we have prepared to build thee, uh, all this store that we have prepared to build thee and house for, thine holy name cometh of thine own hand, and is all thine own. I know also, my God, that thou triest the heart, or testest the heart, and you have pleasure in uprightness. As for me, in the uprightness of my heart, I have willingly offered all these things. And now have I seen with joy thy people, which are present here, to offer willingly unto thee, O, o Lord. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, our fathers, keep this forever in the imagination or the thoughts of the heart of thy people, and prepare their heart unto thee. And give unto Solomon, my son, a perfect heart, to keep thy commandments, thy testimonies, and thy statutes, and to do all these things, and to build the palace for which I have made provision. And David said to all the congregation, now bless the Lord your God, and all the congregation bless the Lord God of their fathers. They bowed down their heads, and they worshiped the Lord and the king. Thank you, and you may be seated, please. Well, one thing never changes. After 50 years, I've discovered that there is one constant in the work of the Lord, and that thing that never changes is that it takes money to do the Lord's work. It takes money to do the Lord's work. There's nothing that we can do much, humanly speaking, here at the church that does not require money in some form. Whether we go and buy 
Sunday school literature or we pay uh, staff or whether we purchase a bus to use the Lord's work or whether we put an advertisement in the paper, it costs us the same thing that it does everybody else. So all other things being equal, the more money you have, the more you can do in the Lord's work. And the Lord has really blessed us wonderfully. He has certainly provided for this church from its beginning. I can hardly believe how God has used this church, blessed this church financially. And when I thank Him for it, I have to thank you people because our money doesn't come from the television program, not much of it, a little bit of it, but a tiny, less than 1%, probably maybe 1%. Our money doesn't come from a few benefactors somewhere. Our philosophy here has been to teach the people what the Bible says, pass the plate, and let trust the Lord to take care of us, and He has done that. So how do we then finance God's work? Every Christian ought to understand that. How do we finance the Lord's work? Well, different churches use different approaches. For example, if you lived in Italy or Germany or in the Scandinavian countries or in many of the countries of Latin America, you would pay for the church through your taxes. Believe it or not, part of your tax bill would include funding for the state church. But we abhor that. That is an unscriptural practice uh, to speak in, in the most kind terms about it. The Bible never says that the state is to support the church. We believe in the separation of church and state. So never would we touch a penny of tax money. In other places, why churches canvass the membership. And by that, I mean they'll send letters, and they'll have some sort of campaign or something Someone might visit you from a finance committee or from the deacons or the leadership of the church in some capacity and uh, hand you a pledge card and ask you if you would be willing to make a pledge to the church's budget that year. In other churches, they take offerings as we do, and then they add to those offerings with fundraising efforts. So they'll have dinners, they'll have bingo games, they will have yard sales, they'll have auctions. They'll have car washes. They'll think of every possible way to raise money. And uh, that's the way they finance their ministries. In other churches, they take offerings. And I know of many cases where this happens that when they don't get enough money through the offering and the church begins to run a deficit, then they'll go and talk to the well-off people that are members of the congregation and solicit funds from them Basically, they operate with the blessing of their own benefactors within their own congregation. And so you have all these assorted ways of financing the Lord's work. But there's a biblical plan, and that is what we try to practice here at the Florence Baptist Temple. We look to the Bible for instruction about how we are to finance the Lord's work, believing that He is more interested in His work than we are, and that if we'll follow his plan, we believe that he will provide for his church. And that plan is found in the book of Malachi, chapter 3, and verse 10. You're familiar. I won't even ask you to turn there. It says, bring all the tithes. Bring them. Don't mail them. Don't do it on the computer. 
bring them because God understands a principle there. Uh, to refer to Brother Willie Calder's testimony, there's a principle, and that is that giving is always in the Bible associated with worship. We never disassociate it from worship. We never depersonalize it and say, mail it in. Oh, if you've been sick or on vacation, if you want to mail it, we'll, we'll take it. But that's not the normal plan. The normal plan is you pick up your Bible and you write your tithe check and you bring it, and with the congregation as an act of worship, you place it in the offering plate because it is more than just financing the Lord's work. It is worship of God. Now, let me tell you a principle you'll find throughout the Bible, and don't ever forget this, and you won't learn this in too many places today because we've relegated giving to fundraising. We even talk about it. Churches talk about fundraising. I, I received an email yesterday afternoon on my phone, and the email said, Pastors, uh, we want to help you finance your work this year, and if you'll, you know, give us your credit card and all that, Spend a few hundred bucks, we'll tell you how to finance the church's work this year. We are the experts in how you can fundraise. That's the term they use. That's not a biblical term. I'm not, I don't mean it's a bad term, but what I mean is God's work is specifically financed in God's way. And God's way is come to worship the Lord, and when you do, bring your tithe and bring your offering to the Lord as God has prospered you. You see the same principle in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 2. On the first day of the week, where do you go on the first day of the week? Well, I better not ask that to, to too many people, huh? But where do you go on the first day of the week? Will you go to worship the Lord? On the first day of the week, let every one of you, every single person, not just the well-off or a certain category, on the first day of the week, wherever you go, he says, you take your offering as God has prospered you, proportionate giving, and you give it at the place where you worship on the first day of the week. So that's our plan here. And it is all, giving is always associated with the place of worship in the Bible. From Cain and Abel who went to an altar and brought their offering right on through the Bible, the act of giving is a part of the worship of Almighty God through His local church. Now, the background of this passage is this. David had a vision, a dream to build a house for the Lord. He looked at the tabernacle, all tattered and worn after hundreds of years, that they had used it as a temporary place of worship since the time of Moses, in fact. And David said, why should God be worshiped in this old tattered house that is unfit for the name of God, I want to build the Lord a great grand home, a house for our Lord. In fact, it says it right here. And he went to the Lord and he prayed about it. And the Lord said, no, you can't build that, David, because you have been a man of war. You have blood all over your hands. You have been very you much, you're very much the warrior, and there's been a lot of um, killing in your life, and that doesn't necessarily equate to what I want you to do. And so he said, I want your son to build the house for me. I want to build the house, but I want your son, Solomon, to do it. But 
I'm going to let you raise the money and raise the, the things that will be needed to provide for the house of worship. And so David takes that offering here in 1 Chronicles chapter 29. Understand, this is the last thing officially that David ever did before he died. He did this in his absolute last days. And he led the way in the offering. In the first few verses of the chapter, we didn't read them, but he gave a huge amount of gold and silver and wealth. In fact, his offering almost equaled the offering of the entire nation of the people. An extraordinary offering from the king himself. And then he asked the people to participate, each one of them. Now, he wanted the Lord's house to be really great and grand. And I want to emphasize that because there's, there's a certain strain of thinking among evangelical Baptist people that, you know, we oughtn't to do things really too nice at the church. We ought to, you know, just sort of tone it down and just anything will do. Let's just build an old shed or use a plain building or something. And uh, you can go too far being ornate. I would agree to the point that you're, you're doing it for your own pride. But, you know, I think the Lord deserves a wonderful, grand house of worship wherever people worship Him. We ought to give the Lord our very best. And that's what they did right here in Chronicles. Now, I want you to notice with me about three things about the giving of the people there. One, I want you to notice the foundation of stewardship. We're talking about stewardship. What is the foundation of stewardship? You'll find it in verse number 11. You see right in the middle of the verse, there's a phrase. Here's the phrase. All that is in, in heaven and in earth is thine. All that is in heaven and that is upon the earth belongs to God. In other words, God is the universal owner. God owns it all. That is the foundation. That is the root of the tree of fellowship. That is the absolute most basic thing about stewardship that I could teach you. If I didn't teach you anything else, really, I've done a fair job. If I can communicate to every single person in this building and in our membership that God is the owner of every single thing. Notice what it says, all that is in heaven and earth. God is the source of all things. Look down in verse 12, and then it explains it a little more thoroughly. In verse number 12, it says that riches come from God. If you are blessed of God and you have money, every penny of it came from the Lord. Look further, it says honor. And so if you're respected, even that honor that has accrued to you through your accomplishments in life, whatever it may be, that also was given to you by God. And then it says down in the middle of the verse, power and might. We would probably equate that to position. If you have a high and respected position today, it's because the Lord gave it to you. Don't, don't assume that you did it through your own, your own efforts. And so all riches and all honor and all power and might and greatness and position, and I could go on. You know, we sing that in that familiar old strain called the doxology. And we stand and we sing, praise God from whom 
all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. In other words, the Scripture says, everything has its source in the goodness of Almighty God, and He gives it to us. Now, that's so important. If I could get everybody to really buy into that, believe me, this would be the greatest stewardship church probably anywhere around. Look down in chapter 14 as well, and the second part of the verse. It says, all things come of thee, and of thine own have we given thee. All things come of thee, meaning the source of everything, the source of everything is Almighty God. I stand here today and I breathe oxygen that I can't even see. I don't even think about. I take it for granted. But if I didn't have it for just a moment or two, I'd pass out, wouldn't I? Everything comes from God, even the invisible things that we don't think about. Listen to other verses. Don't turn there. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and all they that dwell therein. Look at James chapter 1, every good gift and every perfect gift cometh down from the Father of lights. Notice the everys, every good gift. You don't have anything that's good that didn't come from God. Every perfect gift cometh down from the Father above. And so think about it, every gift. Are you healthy today? My health is from because of the grace of God upon my life. I look outside and the sun is shining. It's a gift from God. I look outside on another day, and it's raining, and I know how essential the rain is to feeding the world, and it's a gift of God. And I look around at home today. I go home, and there's a, a wonderful plate full of nourishing food that my wife prepares for me. Don't take it for granted. It didn't come from Piggly Wiggly or Food Line. It came from God. Ask a little kid that one day in our own school, a teacher was laughing and talking about where does milk come from? And he said, Piggly Wiggly. He doesn't even know that it comes from a cow. And we take things like that for granted, you know? Where does everything that's good come from? Everything that I have that's good, my wife, my family, my children, my grandchildren, my position, um, my ministry, Everything that I have, my home that I live in, my car that I drive, if it's good, it came from God. He is the owner of it all. Amen, church? Amen. Amen. I tell you, if we can get hold of that, 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7, what do you have that you did not receive? Think about that. What do you have that you didn't receive? Everything that I have, I've received it from the Lord. In His grace, He has kindly given it to me. Look down in verse 16. He makes the point again. Oh, Lord, our God, all this store, store meaning a storehouse or abundance. You could write in your margin there, abundance. Oh, Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have prepared to build the in-house for, all of it comes from you. All the abundance that we have in life. Did you have enough money to go out and eat this week? Maybe go out and go to a nice restaurant. Well, did you thank the Lord for it? It came from Him. You have nice clothes? They came from Him. See, without your ability to work, without health, without a sound mind, 
You wouldn't be able to have those things. I tell you, I emphasize it. I just want to drive the nail right through the board. God owns it all, and it all comes from God. And so the foundation of stewardship is God's ownership. We work. We get an education. We plan. But God is the source of every blessing that you can have. In other words, I can't even give God anything today that he has not given to me first. That's what verse 14 here says. I can't even give God anything but what he has first given it to me. And so I have my stewardship card, and I wrote in there, filled in the blank, how much Norm and I intend to give to the Lord if our life and health continues this, each week this year. And you know what? I'm not really giving that to him. He gave me everything. I'm giving him back a little pittance of it, right? I'm giving him back a proportion of it, a tithe of it, an offering from it. It all is from him. Boy, when you get that kind of perspective, it changes the way you look at things in life. God blesses me so I can bless him. Why does it bless him? He doesn't need my little bit of money. He's God. Why, does he, why do I bless him when I give to him? Because in the very act of giving to him, I'm saying, Lord, I love you. I acknowledge you. I honor you by my giving. I worship you. You are my God, my creator. I recognize that, Lord, I love you more than the little bit of money I could keep back and use for myself. I'm going to practice stewardship. So God is the originator of it all. Three O's about God. God is the originator, and God is the owner, and God is the operator of everything in this universe. He originated it when he created it. He owns it because he created it. And he operates it, the entire universe and everything in it. And that's the basis of all stewardship, of all giving to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what is my attitude in stewardship? Because attitude's everything. Boy, attitude is everything in every field, isn't it? I talked to you last week about the Clemson football game, and I watched them. And to me, the, uh, after the uh, ball game interview was more interesting to me, frankly, than the ball game was because I was listening to what the coach, Dabo Sweeney, said, and the players were affirming his message, and it was all about attitude. It was all about having a winning spirit and loving each other and sacrificing for each other and all that goes in to creating a great team, a successful movement of some kind. And attitude is everything. Now, notice the attitude of these people right here in First Chronicles when David began to take that great offering for the temple. First of all, it was a willing attitude, a willing attitude. I took my Bible, and I took a little red marker that I had, and I began to see a pattern, and so I marked in red the word willing. And seven times in this brief passage of Scripture, it talks about a willing spirit, a willing attitude. Verse 5, who then is willing to consecrate his service today? Verse number 6, the last two words, they offered willingly. 
Verse 9, the people rejoiced, and they offered willingly. And again, because with a perfect heart, they offered willingly. That word willingly means voluntarily. They weren't being coerced. They weren't doing anything they didn't want to do. Go down to verse number, um, let's see, verse 14. That they should be able to offer so willingly after this sort. Go down to verse 17. I have willingly offered all of these things. I might have even missed some. I don't know. But over and over, like a drumbeat through this entire passage, David is talking to the people, and he's saying to them, we must offer willingly. We don't give it. Over in 2 Corinthians, in fact, keep your finger right here in 1 Chronicles. Go to 2 Corinthians in the New Testament because I want you to see your attitude my attitude is absolutely imperative. It's vitally important to our ideas about stewardship and giving to the Lord. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, is the most extensive treatment of giving you'll find anywhere in the Bible. If you don't believe in giving to the Lord, and if you don't have a generous spirit, then you need to read and study 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 and there's a great deal of instruction there. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 6, This I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap sparingly. So, sow a little and reap a little. If you're stingy, you're not going to have a great harvest. It's just that simple. And he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully generosity will come home to you. God says, as you sow, you will reap. But then continue. Every man as he purposeth in his heart. Now, that's the reason we do what we do here. You purpose in your heart what you're going to give. So nobody's calling you on the phone from the Baptist temple. Nobody is circulating something. That this is what you have to do. I've even heard through the years this ridiculous thing. And, and really, it for years, I laughed about it. Now, it, it angers me. There are people in town that tell people when they come here, there are people who tell them, now, they're going to check your W-2 form. Uh, I, I can't believe that anybody with half intelligence would, would even say something like that. We don't check your W-2 form. Uh, now, I would like to and collect on it, Yeah. But I know the impossibility. I know the stupidity of that. No, that's not going to happen. And I don't know of a church that puts less pressure on people than we do because you're seeing the whole thing right here, right now. You know what I do? I preach to you from the Word of God. Now, I, I don't say there's no pressure because if the Holy Spirit lives in you, <laughs> he, may be put, he may be putting some pressure in there that I don't have anything to do with. So you deal with him about that, huh? But uh, the conviction of the Holy Spirit is, is that's, that's between you and the Lord. But notice what it says there in verse 8. Every man as he purposeth, you decide what you want to give, so let him give. But not grudgingly. Don't sit there and say, mm, I don't want to give, but I'm going to have to give a little bit. My conscience is killing me. <laughs> no, no. Not grudgingly, not of necessity, meaning not because you have to. Everybody read the last phrase with me. For God loveth a cheerful giver. I could hardly hear you. That was so half-hearted. 
That makes me sick. Everybody together, like we believe God's Word, for God loveth a cheerful giver. One more time with a smile on your face. For God loveth a cheerful giver. Something to watch people say, God loveth a cheerful giver. No, God loves a cheerful giver. And uh, stewardship ought to be a happy day at the Baptist temple, shouldn't it? Notice something else about it. Verse number one, their attitude was not only a willing spirit, but it was a grateful and affectionate spirit. In verse one, David said, it's not for, God, it's not for man, it's for God. You're giving to the Lord. You're not giving ultimately to the church or, or the pastor or to the programs. We're giving to the Lord. He is the one who's deserving of our giving, of our tithes, and of our offering. And look in verse 3. I love this phrase. David said, I've set my affection on the house of the Lord. David said, I love my church. I buy in. I'm all in. I believe in the programs. I believe in the people. I believe in what we're doing. I've set my affection, in our case, on the Florence Baptist Temple. It's not perfect. Everybody could look around and find some flaw, some criticism perhaps. But David says, I've set my affection on the church. I love my church. I love its mission. I have bought in. I believe in what it's doing. And then look down in verse 9. There's a third attitude they had. They had a willing spirit. They had an affectionate spirit. And they had a joyful spirit in verse 9. The people rejoiced. And when David saw the people rejoicing, he rejoiced. And in verse 17, he talks about the joy. And so we come back again. God loves a cheerful giver. In Acts chapter 20, the Bible instructs us and it says, it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. You know, I watched them not long ago, less than a month ago, and they had these dollies and trucks were coming in here from these various agencies, and we were loading up those boxes of food, Four, 400, maybe over, right around 500 boxes, 50 pounds each of food that we were able to collect during the uh, Christmas season when we had the f uh, food uh, drive for the Christmas tree. Over 500 uh, 50 pound boxes of food. And all these agencies were coming in here and they were loading up their trucks and vans and so on with food. Some of them had all they could carry on the van. And, and they were so thrilled. They were so joyful. And you know, as I walked and looked through the window and saw them, you brought joy to me. I thought, you know what? Maybe the most important thing I get to participate in this time of year is to encourage our people to bring in the food. They bring it in. And then hundreds and hundreds of people that are really needy, that needed that food, they receive it. And the joy I received from that was better than any device or trinket or thingamabob or jig that I got during Christmas. The joy of seeing people help that really appreciated, that really needed it, it brings joy. Nehemiah reminds us the joy of the Lord is my strength. Think about it when you got the mully grubs and you're down and you're discouraged and depressed. 
You feel weak, don't you? It drains you of your energy physically. But when the joy of the Lord infuses our hearts and minds, well, we, we draw strength from that. So we have the foundation of stewardship. We have the attitude of stewardship. And let's look at the reality of stewardship for just a moment. It's in verse 15. And I want to call your attention to a phrase there. We are strangers before thee, and we're sojourners. What is a sojourner? A sojourner is an alien. We could read that in our world of today and call it, we are pilgrims and aliens, or pilgrims and strangers from the, from the land. That's what a sojourner is. He's an alien. He's not a citizen. He's temporary. He or she is passing through the land. And David reminded Israel, the people of Israel, of their status. What is, does their status, what is their status? Oh, their passport might have said Israeli citizen. But their true status was they were passing through. They were aliens and they were pilgrims. Notice what else it says in 15. It says, our days on earth are as a shadow. And you see the shadow moving. Even as you stand there, sometimes you can see it move. Our days on earth are a shadow, and there's none abiding. We're passing through. We're not staying. Fellow said, I came here permanently. There is nothing permanent in this life. Have you watched the pictures on television, the videos of the caravans coming out of Central America? Those are sojourners. They're pilgrims. They're strangers. They're passing through. They're from Guatemala, Nicaragua, and El Salvador, and they're walking through Mexico hoping they can get into the United States. And I look at them, and, and, and I oppose much of this illegal immigration. I, a country has to have borders or it's not a country. On the other hand, I look at those people, and I feel a certain sense of compassion. I watch them pulling a little old uh, piece of luggage with a wheel on it, and that's all they have, the whole world. Walking with a backpack. I watched it yesterday, I think it was, and they were sitting, they were so weary. They were sitting on a railroad track on the rails, and they had their knees pulled up and their heads were down. I guess they were trying to sleep, a whole long line of people. And I thought, they're bone tired. They're so weary, and they have nowhere to go, and they have no means and they're hoping that they're going to get into the United States. It's a tragic, tragic situation. Well, I'm just a little bit removed from that myself. We think that we're secure. We think because we have money and positions and so on. But we're passing through. You know what Jesus said? He said, you can lay up treasures but he said, lay them up in heaven. You can't keep them on this earth, but you can send them on ahead, can't you? I've told this story numerous times. I usually tell it at a funeral, but I love the story. They had a funeral procession. Like I sit here in my office and watch one come by my 
office almost every day now, sometimes two or three. And there was a funeral procession in this little tiny southern town, probably like Olana or Bishopville or something. The richest man in town had died. And everybody in town, it looked like, was in the funeral procession. There was two good old boys, you know, two old South Carolina hunting and fishing redneck boys standing on the corner. And the funeral procession is winding by. One of them looked at the other and said, how much do you think he left? The other one said, all of it, all of it. He didn't take one penny with him, did he? I probably told that story. I thought you would say in chorus, all of it. So I can tell it a few more times until everybody does it. What a story, though. How much did he leave? All of it. He didn't take a penny with him. Because we're passing through, aren't we? We're sojourners, aliens, pilgrims. We come through life and we might have a lot, but none of it sticks. Turn with me, if you will, and we close. The book of Mark, chapter 8. I want you to turn your Bible and Let's read a passage of Scripture together as I conclude today. Mark chapter number 8, verse number 34. And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself. Stewardship requires a small amount of self-denial. And take up his cross and follow me. Boy, lots of so-called Christianity today with no self-denial, no cross. Christianity on the easy. Christianity without sacrifice. Christianity without self-denial. Jesus went on, whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. And here it is, the heart of everything we do here. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and he lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Our heads are bowed.